The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well, and for the next little while it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. It's that time again, and I hope this finds you well. If you've been listening for a little while now, you'll know that I'm a big old geek for horror movies and horror fiction and and things like this, Um, among other things. I'm a geek about a lot of stuff. But I am particularly passionate about horror, and this week we are talking to someone whose enthusiasm for the subject eclipses, I think, even my own, and that is author Brianna Morgan. Brianna and I talk about her latest book, Mouthful of Ashes, her short story anthology, The Trick or Treater and Other Stories, her plays, The Pandemic, what it's like to be an independent writer, and let me tell you folks, it's no easy thing. So we talk about all of that, and we're going to get to that here in a minute. But before we do, I want to remind you, if you want an ad-free feed, head on over to patreon.com slash largelythetruth. That's patreon.com slash largelythetruth. And for $2 a month, you don't have to listen to any ads. That's four episodes per month, no ads, no nonsense. It's a great deal. One final piece of housekeeping. I mentioned last week I would be giving a talk about podcasting on the Wisdom app, but the time hadn't been decided yet. However, uh, that has been decided. And Monday, December 20th is when that's happening. You can tune in live. You can participate by asking questions. That is all available on the Wisdom app. Search for me, Largely the Truth. doesn't cost anything. All you got to do is sign up for the app. And if you don't want to frig around and bother with doing all that stuff live, the talk will be available on my YouTube channel at a later date. And I'll, of course, let you know once that goes up. So again, that's Monday, December 20th at 1 p.m. on the Wisdom app. I'll be on there as Largely the Truth talking about podcasting. And when I say talking about podcasting, really what I mean is being frank and honest about what it takes to start a show, to maintain a show, and how to set not only realistic goals and expectations for yourself, but how to keep going when it seems like it's not going anywhere, or at least it's not going the way you want it to go. You know, but podcasting is by its nature a very solitary job. So you have to be good at motivating yourself. And that's not easy. And so that's, that's one of the things that I'll be talking about on the Wisdom app, Monday, December 20th at 1 p.m. And that's 1 p.m. Pacific time. Finally, if you like the show and you have questions or comments, you can find me on the Repod app. Just search for Largely the Truth, Brennan Store, find the episode you want to comment on, and I'm very active in there. I respond to everybody, and I would love to hear from you. Again, that's the Repod app, available for both Android and iTunes. All right, now with all that out of the way, We can sit back, relax, and reach out to horror author Brianna Morgan. My guest tonight is horror author, playwright, and freelance writing consultant Brianna Morgan. Brianna is here to talk about her inspiration, life as an independent writer, and of course, her latest book, Mouthful of Ashes, 
a Lost Boys-inspired story of teenage love and vampirism set against the backdrop of a fading seaside town. Brianna, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thank you for having me. Oh, very welcome. It's a pleasure. First off, I just saw on your Patreon that Mouthful of Ashes has, pardon me, the audiobook for Mouthful of Ashes has just hit stores. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Are you, the, are you narrating it or do you have a narrator doing it? Oh, no, I have, I have someone else doing it. I thought <laughs> okay. about narrating my own stuff, but it's, um, it's just a slog. And I think yes. that there are people who are just so much better and enjoy it more than me. So I will be happy to pay them to do it. <laughs> That's fair. I, I've done two audiobooks and I don't enjoy it. It's, it's a pain in the ass. It's a lot of work. Yeah. She, my narrator, I, I lucked out because she's excellent and she had her own sound engineer working oh, on wow. the editing and whatnot independently. So I didn't even really need to give her any notes, which was, it was great. Oh man. Yeah. That was, that is, that is an uncommon, uh, an uncommon privilege. So very, very yeah. cool. Usually what I have to do is I have to go through and listen to everything and um, I'll have to tell the narrator to re-record things, which I don't like doing. And I know no. they don't like doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, after spending so much time writing it, to then have to listen to it over and over. I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've only written the one book, but I know after a while I got pretty goddamn sick of hearing it. Yeah. And it's like, I don't really like to hear, I don't like to hear my own voice. So hearing my own writing is kind of the same, kind of <laughs> right. the same cringe factor to it for me. Right. And I think I saw on Twitter that uh, Mouthful of Ashes has quickly become one of your best-selling books, yeah? Yeah, it is my second bestseller um, after The Trick or Treater. Very cool. And, and that's another book I'd like to talk about when we, uh, when we get around to it, because I quite enjoyed The Trick or Treater as well. Thank you. So before we do that, though, I'm kind of curious, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? I feel like this is the standard podcast answer that a lot of writers give, but I've wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. Um, as a kid, my grandfather was an avid storyteller. And okay. He would just make up stories and tell us stories all the time. And I loved that. I loved spending time with him and I loved how creative he got. Basically, anytime I came to him with a question for why something is the way it is, he would come up with a story for it. So that was a lot of fun. And then I, I got into reading naturally and I realized right. that I could combine the love of storytelling with the love of reading and I could make my own stories. So I, I want to say I wrote my first book of sorts at nine. Um, oh, it was just wow. like a, like a picture book. Sure. Still. <laughs> for school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I still have it somewhere. That's a collector's item one day, I guarantee. Yeah, <laughs> I hope. So you've always wanted to be a writer for a long, long time, but uh, when did you first realize you were interested in horror? So as a child of the, the 90s and early aughts, I was drawn to Goosebumps. Um, oh, okay. I saw, I saw Goosebumps at the Scholastic Book Fair. And uh, yeah, the rest was history. I just kept devouring those. And it, it's funny because they used to give me really vivid nightmares. I would have night terrors, uh, oh, not geez. just from the books, but in general. Okay. And so Goosebumps didn't really help, but I, I kept reading them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I, I know now means I liked them. But it's like, why, why would I keep torturing myself like that? Um, but that's every horror fan does that. I think to an extent, we like to make ourselves uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I fell asleep watching, uh, what was it? I think it was Neil Blomkamp's Demonic a little mm -hmm. while ago. And uh, I was jolted awake at one point by this anguished scream and three in the morning, someone's <laughs> screaming, you know, in this dark. Yeah. And I think, what am I doing with my life? What the hell is wrong with me? But you just keep going back. 
Yeah, you're like, why do I like this? this I shouldn't like this. Evolution has taught me to get away from these things. <laughs> and then I just don't listen. You're just fighting evolution. I never thought about it like that. So with Mouthful of Ashes, you've mentioned in interviews that that was inspired, as, as I said in the intro, by the Lost Boys. But what specifically made you think that this is, this is the next thing I want to do? You know, after Trick or Treater, what was the, the kernel of the idea that uh, developed into Mouthful of Ashes? So with Trick or Treater, I, a lot of the stories have that nostalgic feel and you can see that in the cover, it kind of echoes that. And I wanted to write something that kind of felt like 80s nostalgic horror or nostalgic coming okay. of age in a way. I wasn't sure which one I wanted to go with, um, but then I rewatched Lost Boys and I was like, you know what, I really want to write a vampire story, which is funny because I, I said I would never write a vampire story. <laughs> And then here we are. But I watching Lost Boys now as an adult, obviously, I notice a lot more nuanced things that I didn't notice before. Like there are there are a lot of queer undertones to it, even though no one is overtly queer in any way. It just it feels like a queer movie. And I just kind of thought, you know, what would happen if you took that and you not only modernized it, but you diversified it a little more and played with people's orientations and things like that because if you're a vampire, you live forever. You're going to get tired of the same old stuff. I feel like you're going to branch off and try a bunch of new things. Just makes sense. And yeah, I feel like so much of that 80s entertainment, and really, I mean, up to the aughts, honestly, so much of that, you know, queerness has had to be sub Rosa. You mm -hmm. know, they, they've, it's had to kind of be subtext. I mean, a, as a, you know, a sort of a straight cis guy, I, I, I missed a lot of it. And mm -hmm. now as I'm, as I'm having it kind of pointed out to me, it's been enlightening. You know, yes. I, I so I showed some friends who are much younger than me Highlander, the first film, and they said, wow, this is a really pretty, <laughs> pretty queer movie, my friend. And I said, what do you mean? Oh. And then I, as I'm watching these guys crossing swords and then having these ecstatic moments where lightning strikes, I thought, oh, oh, oh mm -hmm. okay, I get it now. I get it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Top Gun, you can't watch oh. Top Gun without seeing it. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Even, um. that, even I caught that one. No. It's pretty out there. <laughs> yeah. Something about the 80s, they just wanted to make everything a little gay, just a little bit. There's a great podcast. Uh, you might even be familiar with Austerion. Mm -mm. So it's uh, the film critic Jordan Cruciola and the filmmaker Sam Weinman, and they examine Ott's horror Ooh. sort of through that queer lens. It's oh, I really need to check that out. Very, very good. And um, just in terms of sort of finding those threads and exploring them and celebrating them. I have found some fantastic movies through, mm -hmm. that, uh, through that show. So yeah, definitely worth your time. Thank you. I'll look that up. Mouthful of Ashes is set in this, in this little seaside town. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that vibe in fiction, in, even in life. There's something about a slightly fallen down seaside town that mm -hmm. seems to have its own secrets. Right. That is just immensely appealing. And if I'm correct, Neep Bay, which, where the, the book is set, that's not a real place, correct? No, it's not real. But was there one particular place that inspired you? I took a bunch of different small towns in California. Um, right. Obviously in Lost Boys, it's Santa Clara, um, which I, now I don't know if that's a real town or not. I think it's based on a different town. But it's always easier for me to just pick and choose pieces of towns and make my own rather than right. I don't want to use something that exists and then people be like, oh, that's not, that's not really there. I kind of wanted Neat Bay to feel like Salem, Massachusetts, but on the beach. Okay. Which is a weird vibe. 
but it makes sense to me. Absolutely does. And, and the way you write the place, it's got that, um, that, that emptiness, but that mm-hmm. emptiness that seems to be harboring something. Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback are you getting? Mostly positive. There are a bunch of people who, not a bunch of people, there are a few people who don't like how close it is to the Lost Boys. Right. Um, but it is kind of a reimagining. It's funny because I don't really read my reviews. I will only see things if people tag me in them. Right. Um, and some people have tagged me in bad reviews, which is not good form. But I don't understand that at all. I don't know what they want me to do. But the reception has mostly been good. A lot of people are saying it makes them feel like they're back in the 80s. It recaptures that, that feeling of nostalgia that they get watching The Lost Boys or another 80s horror movie. Absolutely. And, and the representation is hugely important, too. I, are you finding that it's connecting with, with queer audiences? Yes. Um, I've actually had two or three reviewers say they really appreciated how, um, how few straight characters there are in there. <laughs> <laughs> just, just because it's, everyone in that book is just all over the place, but it's, like, it's clear that I'm not making people gay just to make them gay. I'm, they're just people who happen to be queer. That's what I want to see as a queer woman. I want to see more of that in horror. Because right now it's very much a lot of queer characters exist to get killed. Obviously, I don't think that queer people should exist just to be killed to further a plot. So in everything I write, I want to make it a little queerer, a little more true to life. Absolutely. And I think for me, it's, it's one of the things I find frustrating when I read criticism of these kind of works. Because if someone doesn't understand that just including this character and making that part of their identity the focal part of the character, if they don't understand that is kind of problematic tokenism, mm-hmm. it's almost hard to know where to have that larger conversation. Is it such a large issue? Yeah. Wh- where do you even begin? It is. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who think, um, a lot of you know cisgender, heterosexual people who think they can't write queer characters because they're so afraid of getting it wrong. They would just rather not even try. And Right, of course. Um, I would much rather have people ask me questions and try to figure things out for themselves and you know, put something out there rather than not doing anything. I couldn't agree more. I'm really fascinated by your position as an independent writer because it seems like that is such a labor-intensive place to be. It is. is that, it is, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a one-woman show. That sounds exhausting. Mm-hmm. I read your, uh, you put out that book about social media, yeah, and I, just reading through it, you know, I was staggered by the amount of work you know, that, that goes into being an independent writer. And I was also very gratified to know that you also think Facebook is bullshit. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, I have a few people on my Facebook page, but anytime I post something there, I just feel like I'm yelling into the void. I don't think there's anyone actually there. Yeah. I have never been a fan of the platform and with the pod, with my other, with this podcast, I have a Facebook page. I've never done a single thing to it because I just, I, I disagree with the company fundamentally on so mm-hmm. many things. And I find the audience there uh, quite often can be very negative. Oh, yeah. And so I just think, why would I want to, you know, sort of put myself into that, into that position? You know, it, it, the Twitter is bad enough. Forget Facebook. Yeah. Some people do well on Facebook. I personally never have. I'm, as you know, from the book, I'm a big believer in finding what works best for you. So for some people that might be Facebook, but it's definitely not for me. <laughs> yeah, no fair. 
And so you mentioned actually in, in that book that most of your sales have been through Twitter. And I'm really interested to know how, how have you managed to bring that about? So I've had my Twitter for 11 years. Right. Um, so I have 10,000 followers, but when you consider the fact that I've had the account for 11 years, it's been like a slow, steady growth. And right. I focused more on building relationships with people and being an actual human on the internet rather than just <laughs> right. trying to push. Um, I do push sales. Don't get me sure. wrong. I have to, I have to make a living, but I try to avoid doing anything that could be misinterpreted as, um, you know, scammy or opportunistic. Right. I think so many people fail to realize that social media, you know, if, if it's going to work for you, you have to be building relationships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I manage the social media for the, for the podcast as well. And, and I'll, I'll see people constantly for years. I've seen this doing the, the follow and then unfollow thing. And I think, yeah. do you honestly think that works? I mean, are, is, are we still, how can we still be living in this year of our Lord 2021 and people are still pulling that shit and thinking it's a good idea? Yeah, it's horrible because you go, if you go on YouTube and you search, you know, how to grow your Instagram, that's almost everybody recommends follow on follow. Really? And it's just, it's so bizarre because that's a good way to get your numbers up, but you're not getting people who are engaged with your work or who are interested in your work. That's so there's it. there's really no point to it. It's just vanity. Uh, on the subject of being an independent writer, I was going through the, the couple Kickstarter campaigns you've done. And I'm really interested by that because I, I've known some people who've had really wonderful experiences with Kickstarter, and I know some people who've had real, well, I mean, they've managed to get their projects funded, but it's been a real slog. And I know that was a, a little bit of an issue for you with the second Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. So anytime I talk about this, it, people get confused because I say it was kind of a rough experience for me and I wouldn't do it again, even though I got fully funded and we exceeded our funding. I wasn't prepared for it to kind of go viral in the way that it did. Um, the oh, scale, yeah, the scale just, I couldn't scale up quite the way that I'd planned. I had to send out, I think, 175 signed paperbacks. Oof. And that was not even just domestically, that was internationally. Um, right. And that was during the time when there were a lot of countries that you couldn't send mail to still. Oh, of course, right. Mm-hmm. So that Yikes. was that was tough. Uh, I ate I ate a lot of that money and shipping costs. Yeah. Um, but I am also grateful to the campaign because I couldn't I couldn't have gotten the cover without that money, and I was featured on Bloody Disgusting, which is something I've wanted for years. Oh, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that would have happened without the campaign going viral, but it was, it was very difficult for me afterward to fulfill everything. And there's still, I'm looking right now, I have a package, uh, for someone in Brunei. Oh, wow. Um, and they can't accept mail from the U S and they haven't been able to for over a year. So oh, I just have her book sitting here and I offered to send her an ebook, but she said she's willing to wait. I don't know how long that's going to be. <laughs> I mean, that's uncommon courtesy from what I've heard for Kickstarter. Cause I've heard I've heard horror stories. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it is that some people at least have a very rosy view of crowdfunding and it, it can open a lot of doors, but as you mm-hmm. say, it can also, it can also take if you're not careful. And even if you are yeah. careful sometimes. Yeah. And the fulfillment, the fulfillment is definitely the hardest part. I still have people every so often who will pop up and say, you know, I didn't get my ebook or I didn't get my audiobook, which is frustrating to me because multiple times in the Kickstarter campaign, I've been like, let me know if you don't have X by this date 
and then it's just nothing. Right. But then they're frustrated with me. It's it's a weird like communication mismatch. I think that's one of the most frustrating things about being an independent artist is having to directly deal with sales. Yeah. I mean, I, I sell autograph copies and I sell sort of stickers and pins and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But most of our merch for the the podcast, I, I, that's all done through T Public and Redbubble, because I very quickly realized this is a this is not my strong suit. Same here. I don't like sales. <laughs> yeah, it's just a goddamn nightmare. And so, I, I, again, I don't think a lot of people realize that. And I think, you know, I've heard independent artists who sell on Etsy say this too. You know, the, the big boys have kind of instilled this mindset in customers that they're, you know, you're dealing with Amazon, you're dealing with Brianna Morgan, you're dealing with Ghost Story Guys. Mm-hmm. It's all of a piece. You know, you can demand things. You can, you should expect things. And it's, it's so exhausting to try and keep up with that. You know, I'll see, again, these talented uh, artists on Etsy being pressured to offer things like free, free shipping and, mm-hmm. and stuff like this. And I think, how, how can you possibly think that's realistic? Yeah, I've had to deal with uh, some of that lately with signed copies because I've run out of stock of some of my books and I've right. had to reorder them, but there are shipping and supply chain issues right now. Yes. So there are people who ordered books from me, say, a month ago, and I haven't been able to fulfill their orders because I'm still waiting for my copies. Right. Um, like Mouthful of Ashes, I don't. I think I have the only copy I have on hand is this one, and it's the proof copy, so I can't sell it. Right. So it's frustrating. I don't even have copies of some of them. So it's, uh, it's out of my control, and all I can do is make that clear to people and hope that they understand, but it is That's frustrating. It. I had the author Fonda Lee on here a couple of weeks ago and her upcoming book, Jade Legacy. They were a little bit worried at the time about having to delay the release mm-hmm. because of, of supply chain issues. And I, I just, it, you know, it, never thought we'd be dealing with those kinds of challenges. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's such very a, strange. It really is. Yeah. So going back to the writing, I'd love to talk more about uh, the trick or treater and other stories. And that is a great short story collection, folks, and, and make sure to pick all these up. I mean, I bought the Kindle copies. You can have those ones now. But some of the, some of the imagery in Trick or Treater was so nightmarish, but also so signature and so singular that I, I was really, really curious. For example, the Trick or Treater itself, the, I, I don't want to give anything away, but that is such a, a, such a specific and horrific design. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes from? Uh, yes, that comes from my nightmares. <laughs> I wondered. Yeah, when I was a kid, I mentioned I used to have night terrors um, right. and some sleep paralysis. And as anyone who's had sleep paralysis will tell you, oftentimes you see shadow figures. And I remember this really long, thin, kind of hunched over shadow figure standing in the corner staring at me. And I never, I never really knew what it looked like, but right. I just kind of took that idea and I was like, what would be really horrifying? And then I watched Annihilation, so I was like, let's put let's put a bear skull on this guy. Let's put <laughs> let's just make him red for no reason. Um, and then I'm gonna put him in a top hat and nothing else. It's effective. <laughs> it's uh I, I would actually love to see that depicted on screen. My friend Trevor Henderson, he's very good. He does Siren Head oh, and Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did I commissioned him to do a watch. I bet I don't have any of them here now. I commissioned him to do a postcard of the trick-or-treater. Okay. He's very spooky looking. 
I wanted to order a big print of it for our home. And then my fiance was like, I don't want to go around the corner at three in the morning and see that. So you're not, we're not doing that. He puts up with a lot. These are the the dangers of uh, being, being with someone spooky. Yeah. He's not, I just feel, I feel terrible for him because his mom loves Halloween. So his whole life it's been Halloween and then he met me and then it's just worse. It's Halloween all the time. (laughs) And But I've done some good things for him. Like, I introduced him to The Shining. Oh, that's huge. Mm -hmm. I introduced him to some good classic horror, so I feel like I've done my duty, but he definitely, he's not as spooky as I am. (laughs) Have you had a chance to see that 4K restoration of The Shining? No, I do have the 4K restoration of Halloween. That's very good. Oh, you know, I've got it, um, but I, I don't have a 4K player, so I've only seen, like, the Blu-ray version of it. And it looks good, but I'm told the, the actual 4K is just that much better. It's beautiful. It's kind of eerie because it feels it feels like you're there. Oh, wow. That's what I found about The Shining, the, the mm-hmm. restoration of The Shining. Um, I saw it at a screening at the New Art down in LA, uh, just I think it's like 2019, mm-hmm. before everything went bluey. And uh, I've seen The Shining, of course, you know, many, many times. And it's, mm-hmm. it's creepy, but it, it sort of had lost that, that immediate impact, you know? Right. But there was something about the clarity of that restoration, it, it just, you connect with it in a completely mm-hmm. different way or a completely new way. And it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. It seems like it would make it a lot more visceral. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it's, it, it was the, the stitching on Dick Halloran's jacket that and just I, being able to get that close and see that something about that, that finally kind of broke the, the fourth wall. And I was, mm-hmm. I was there and I was not happy about it. Yeah. I sounds like I need to get my hands on that one then. Going back to Trick or Treater, another story that I really, really liked was the dive and the claustrophobia and intensity of the final moments of that story. I mean, mm-hmm. leading up to it, uh, again, I don't want to give anything away, but leading up to it, there's this almost biblical sense to, to the, like what's happening, sort of to the weather and the, the scale of what's beginning to sort of happen around mm-hmm. the main characters. But those final moments, man, that, that image has, has legit haunted me since I read it. Yeah, that's without... Spoiling, that's one of my fears. Oh, <laughs> I, I right. Don't, I don't want to go that way uh, at all. Yeah. So I had I had that final image in my head, and I was like, okay, well, how, how do we get here in a way that feels not inevitable? Yeah, and, and it, it's certainly not at all what I, what I expected. And that's something I really appreciated about the collection, is that so many of the stories, they end in ways I, I didn't ex- expect at all. And there's one in particular, the last one I, I want to bring up, uh, but I'll save that for a sec. With the dive, did you ever watch the show Millennium? No. Millennium was one of the shows that Chris Carter came up with after the success of the X-Files. So it's sort of like a side load to the X-Files. It's kind of okay. meant to be happening at the same time. But there's this one episode where a woman dies, but before she does, she promises that this one particular thing in the house will be moved by her from the other side to prove that she's there. Mm-hmm. And it happens and eventually, but not in the way you expect. And it's very uplifting. And the dive seemed like the inverse of that. That's funny. It's a weird synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so chilling because you, you're watching these characters sort of parse through hurt and, and loss. And, you know, we always want the, the connection when we, if we think we're connecting with the other side or, you know, when we have those moments where, you know, so-and-so is maybe watching out for us. Mm-hmm. we always assume it's, it's going to go well, you know, it's going to be a happy thing. But I, I think what we often forget, and, and we talk about this quite a bit on the other show, but is that past a certain point, the motives 
of, of people who are no longer human are maybe inscrutable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was, uh, yeah, it's very, very chilling story. And uh, folks, again, make sure you check that out as well. Thank you. So the other story I wanted to talk about was the mistake house. Yes. And again, as someone who kind of traffics in ghost stories uh, for my day job, when it opens, I found myself thinking, okay, so this is you know, a ghost story. You wake up, your bed's not where it should be. And uh, there we go. But it's so quickly, it, it just kind of, it, for such a short story, it manages to cover so much ground and to slowly drip out what is happening. And I have to know where, where did the central image for that come from? Or what was there sort of a, a, like a one thing that that story kind of germinated from? I wanted to write body horror. I remember when I went, I wanted to do something body horror because right. I just, I love body horror and just the idea of a haunted house, but not haunted in the way you would expect kind of right. captivated me. So I wanted to explore that. I'd originally planned for it to be a longer piece, like a novel with maybe several points of view of different people who had lived in the house. Okay. But I didn't, I didn't think I could sustain the same amount of tension through a longer piece. Right. And that was actually something I was curious about because I always wonder if there's a subtle pressure to make things of a certain length. Oh yeah, you know, there is. There, there is, eh? Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you push past that? How do you tell you, say to yourself, no, no, this story is like where it is right now. This is what it needs to be. I think a lot of that comes from, from reading and from reading widely, reading good stuff, reading bad stuff, reading in your genre and out of your genre. You can sort of recognize when a story feels complete. Right. And um, especially when I was in college in my workshop programs, it was really hammered home to me, you know, to write a short story that is total, get in late and leave early. Oh, I love so that. So that's, that's what I try to do in everything, uh, everything short because I... I do have a tendency to want to go longer and sometimes things are just more powerful in a shorter form. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking, obviously, you know, your enthusiasm for horror film, I'm noticing this is something that people are becoming a little more open to, you know, non-standard lengths mm-hmm. of things. There, there was that film that was released during the pandemic, Host. Yes, I love Host. Which is so good. And at 56 minutes, the perfect length. Yes. Like, Maybe you could expand the B plot a little more, but you don't need to. I think the heart that's of it. the story is there. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the advantages of all these new delivery platforms is we can play a little bit with these things because people don't have the expectation of paying, you know, God help us, 20 bucks to go see a movie and then being a little bit PO'd when they come out and 55 minutes later and, and uh, you know, they've been terrified, but they're thinking, should that have been longer? Yeah. One of my pie in the sky dreams is to have Trick or Treater adapted into um, like a multi-episode anthology TV series. Oh, sure. So like maybe a different director for each segment. That would be very cool. And again, the imagery is such that you could see it. I mean, the final story, and I, I don't have the name to hand, but the final story w- uh, with the two assassins. The job. The job, thank you. Was so visual and so effective and could so easily lend itself to, uh, to that kind of format. You know, it's sort of, I was getting shades of Hannah. Remember that? Mm-hmm. uh Yes. Yeah, sort of shades of that and uh, just really, really great stuff. So I, I, that you. would be fantastic. Has there been any interest? There's been a little interest, unfortunately. So before the pandemic, I was slated, my play Touch was slated to be a full, be adapted into a full-length opera. Right. In London, and that fell through. 
because oh, people aren't performing. And also Touch is, I'm not sure if you've read it. I have not. But it is, uh, it's basically a play about a world where people can't touch because of a global pandemic. So it turns out that people don't really want to see social distancing the musical when they are living it. So, um, and God bless the the composer. She is so sweet. She's just like, you know, it's not a never, but it's definitely, you know, not great right now. And I'm like, no, I totally, I totally get it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, as much as I enjoy your work, I think I would be hesitant to, uh, to want to see, yeah, social distancing the musical. Even, even your first book, I sort of steered clear of it because that also has has those themes and I thought ah do I need to do I need this right now you don't uh no one does <laughs> the <laughs> sales for blood and water and touch have taken a steep dive which again I, that's fine I don't blame anyone but it's just kind of eerie because I've they're years old I noticed during the early part of the pandemic a lot of people were were doing the opposite they were watching contagion and they were watching uh outbreak and mm-hmm. I thought I don't get it I think it comes from people's desire to make sense of what's going on. And because it it was so unprecedented, you have to go to entertainment for things to kind of make yourself more familiar with what's going on. Oh, interesting. I never never thought about that. You can't base what's going on on your personal experience. So you have to kind of step outside. It's like research, but less scary research. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. So in the wake of touch being announced that it was going to be adapted into an offer, an opera, I had, after I released Trick or Treater, I had a couple of people tell me, you know, I, I would love to do this as a one act play for my school, or um, I would love to, to do this as a short film. But unfortunately, all that stuff has fallen through because of COVID. Um, right. Because people have gone to, it's just a mix of people have gone to remote learning, people, um, their classes have stopped performing and things like sure. that. So unfortunately, none of that has has come through, but I, I'm hoping someday that it gets picked up for something. That's out of everything I've written, I feel like that one has the most potential to be adapted. I hope it's picked up as well because again, I think it's it would function ex- very very well for what you're describing, and I think I think even Mouthful of Ashes I think would would work very very well with someone who had a a sense of how to how to shoot that and how to make that look mm-hmm. sort of the way it the way it reads. I could see Mouthful of Ashes as a Netflix series. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Netflix, (laughs) we know you're listening. Yeah, I I mean, I published Unboxed, um, my first full-length play in the middle of the pandemic, so that kind of sucked because originally my plan was to release that in July 2020, and then I thought maybe by around Halloween people would be looking for spooky stuff to perform, Um, but then no one was performing. So I've never gotten to see that one staged either. Oh man. Well, again, hope, hopefully now that things are, I hesitate to say returning to normal, but returning to a version of the world where we can actually have fun and do things. Yes. Yeah, so a more functional version. Exactly. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that happens. Thank you. As we start to wind down here, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little earlier. You talked about sleep paralysis and you're actually the second horror author I've had on the show who's experienced sleep paralysis. <laughs> and, uh, Weirdly, I spent all of yesterday on various phone calls with people who've experienced sleep paralysis. That's so weird. Funny how these things kind of, they run in, in, Mm -hmm. they run together like that. Do you mind talking a little bit about your experiences with sleep paralysis? Is that something that's sort of affected you your whole life or was that something that sort of came on when you were younger and then, then left? I've had a few instances as an adult. Most of it was when I was a child and I didn't understand it. So 
that coupled with the night terrors, I would have night terrors so vivid that basically I'd wake up and I'd still have like after images. I would still see parts of the dream. Oh, wow. Which was just sleep paralysis. Right. Um, but I was, I was terrified because I felt like I couldn't escape from a nightmare by waking up. Of course. Yeah. Because I would wake up and I would still be in a nightmare. So that was very, that was hard. Um, I don't think I really understood what it was until I was in high school. And by then, by then I hadn't really had any instances and in college, I don't remember it happening, but I know when I moved out on my own, um, I moved to Florida for my first job out of college and I was living alone far away from my family and friends. And it was incredibly stressful. And I had a lot of sleep paralysis in that apartment. And it was, it was bad because it was one of those, there were sliding glass doors in the bedroom, which I thought was weird, like leading to the porch. So I was always oh. worried that someone was going to come through there because it's sure. just glass. Um, so I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would see like a silhouette against oh, the man. door. So not great. No, that is not okay. And now I pretty much know how to, I can avoid it for the most part. Um, I've done some lucid dreaming exercises, so I'm able to pull myself out of nightmares. I can tell when I'm having a nightmare. Very cool. Uh, and sleep paralysis doesn't bother me unless I try to fall asleep on my back for some reason. So I just sleep on my side. I've heard that. I've heard that there is a, a commonality there to to sleeping on your back that seems to bring those things on. It's not exclusively, of course, but th- that is one of the- It is more likely if you sleep on your back. So I just don't yeah. sleep on my back. Problem solved. Easy fix. <laughs> uh, just before we head out to, you mentioned lucid dreaming exercises, and I, I can't imagine my audience uh, is going to be terribly familiar with that. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah. So lucid dreaming is just- basically you train yourself to recognize that you're in a dream and it can be super helpful because you can, you can rehearse conversations with people in your dreams. You can change nightmares. Usually what I do is I use it to get out of nightmares right? because I don't want to have a nightmare. <laughs> um, and it, you, you have to do a bunch of different things, different things. Like you can keep a dream journal to recognize patterns. Um, when you're awake, you do what's called reality checks where you say, look at the clock. Because in dreams, the clocks aren't right. Interesting. Or you look at your reflection because in dreams, if you look at your face, it's all swirly and strange. Really? I did so not through, know that. Throughout the day, you get in a habit of doing the reality checks so that when you're in a dream, you do them kind of subconsciously and then you realize I'm dreaming. Wow. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me because again, I've, I'm familiar with the term, but I didn't actually know what any of the exercises entail. That's Yeah, I'm definitely really not an expert, but it's something I've kind of... It's a weird part of my life that I'd, I've had to teach myself so that I can yeah, sleep. Fair enough. So before we go, I'm kind of curious. I, obviously, you're, you're a fan of horror. We've talked about that. What are some of the films uh, either that you've seen lately that you're really, really enjoying? Or what are some uh, some all-timers for you, some classics that you like to go back to? So I'm actually, I minored in film in college, so I'm always eager to, oh, talk, cool. to talk about film. Um, recently, I watched Last Night in Soho. Uh, Interesting. What did you think? I I loved it. I know a lot of people didn't, but I loved how stylistic it was. And I love some of the risks it took. Some of the shots were beautiful. Uh, I know they did a lot of things. They did almost everything practically. So that that always impresses me. I value, I very much value practical effects over digital. Not that digital is not great and not that those people aren't artists, but it's, there's just something about being able to do it practically. Oh yeah. There's a weight 
to it uh, that that just everything feels a little bit different, mm-hmm. a little more there. So I, I really enjoy that movie. Like I said, it seems like people are divided on that one. Right. Um, I like, I always, always recommend The Wicker Man. I love The Wicker Man. Not the Nick Cage one. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask. Not the Nick Cage one. <laughs> no. Uh, never. The bees. Um, just the bees. God bless him. Uh, I, lo- I love that movie so much. Um, I love The Exorcist, obviously. Of course. Um, most of the horror films I like are 70s, 60s and 70s horror. So The Omen. Um, okay. Amityville Horror. Just something about 70s, the tone of 70s horror. I really yeah. enjoy the atmosphere it has. Have you seen Messiah of Evil? No. Okay, so that that's from '73. Uh, it's Ooh. worth. I think it's on Shutter right now. It's worth checking out. It's 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 actually a, a seaside thing as well. So there's sort of a you know kind of trips my my creepy seaside thing, but yeah. very very effective. Very yeah, much worth to, your time. I have to check that out. Uh, I just finished Midnight Mass not that long ago. Oh yeah, phenomenal. Um, I cried a lot, but yes. Mike Flanagan just kind of does that. But that's another one. It's say. like a seaside town situation. So is Wicker Man. I have his too, yeah. Flanagan uh, with Dr. Sleep, you know, that is a movie that hit me just at, at just the right time. Oh, it's so good. And it's so good. And and the way he manages to sort of uh, visually continue The Shining, but inject it with so much more, kind of so much more pathos and so much mm-hmm. more tragedy. Mm-hmm. I, I just loved it. And, and the, this is a little bit of a spoiler listeners, but- when he meets his father again and you realize that for some people time won't fix them, mm-hmm. they have to fix them. And that, mm-hmm. that was such a powerful message. Flanagan does a great job of taking these, these big sort of scary otherworldly almost ideas and bringing in the, the human tragedy to make it seem more, more palatable. I mean, the haunting of Hill house I think is oh, so good. Is an all timer. Yeah. Like just the, the way he manages to effectively nail family dynamics mm-hmm. and horror is, is so great. And, and his ability to do those long takes, mm-hmm. I, I love that. Like, I know it's a little bit of a, little bit of a show offy thing, but I, I just love it. You know, when some, I love a it's long like, take. yeah, yeah. There was one I noticed in midnight mass, um, that is very subtle, but it's when they find all the dead cats on the beach. Yes. On the beach. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I realized that went on for a long, long time, and, and it just doesn't, doesn't really call attention to itself. It just works. And he does a lot of, um, I mean, especially Midnight Mass is full of monologues. Uh, yes. But the, the way that they're presented, it's like you, you really get to know the characters. It's not people speaking just to speak or just to sound cool. You get a sense of who they are as people. Again, that's something that works for me in horror, although I have to say I'm getting to an age now where I, when I put on like a slasher movie, if the characters are good enough, I just want everyone to have a nice weekend. Yeah. You know they're not going to, but. Yeah, it never works out, but I keep hoping one day. One day. Someone will get away. It's that hope springs eternal. So, Brianna, where can everyone find you online? Uh, I'm all over the place. I am mostly on Twitter as Brie Morgan Books. I'm on Instagram as Brianna Morgan Books. And I am even on TikTok as Brianna Morgan Books. I'm still learning TikTok, though. You and me both. <laughs> it's, a, it's a necessary evil. 
it's a popular uh, format with readers? Yeah, it's um, I I've seen a spike in sales from using TikTok, and I wish I hadn't, so that I didn't have to use TikTok. But <laughs> I was kind of hoping, you know, I'll try it, and then I won't get sales, and I'll be like, "See, look, I just don't need to use it." But that is not what has happened. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Laraca's "Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Just Spoke." We last spoke. I'm not. Or okay, I'm, I'm not so that yet. book um, it was in a, independently published by Weird Punk. And it went viral on TikTok, like oh, to the point okay. that it, it essentially got him an agent. Wow. Yeah. All so right. Big things are happening on TikTok. Oh, man. I wish they weren't. I also wish they weren't. I, uh, one of my uh, sort of colleagues at a, at a different show, she, uh, she does finance and she, mm-hmm. she blew up on TikTok all of a sudden and she got like 25, 30,000 followers and she said it is such a pain in her ass. It's just... It makes me uncomfortable because I, I don't, I don't like attention on me and TikTok is very much focused attention. It's just you. And it's like, I don't, I don't want people to look at me. You can look at my books. Don't look at me. Don't perceive (laughs) me at all. The less you perceive me, the better. Yes. As someone who's had to overcome that same mentality in order to do podcasting and, and things like this, I sympathize because yeah, I, I've had to force myself to upload selfies. Cause I, I just, it was something I would never do. I, under pain mm-hmm. of death, you could not get me to take a selfie, let alone post it. But I yeah. realized people want that. They want to feel that sense of connection. They want to have a, at least an idea of who you are as a person. And so it's just kind of finding as much of yourself as you're comfortable sharing. And that's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. It's challenging. It can be frustrating. Um, I, that's a reason I started doing more podcasts is I, I have pretty bad social anxiety and I used to get so sick before I would do a podcast interview. So oh, I just no. started doing more and more. And now it's just, I just feel like I'm having a conversation with people, which is all it is. That's it. Um, yeah. But it's, it's one of those things that I still get a little twinge of nerves every time. Me too. So I understand completely. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> oh yeah. Again, my guest has been Brianna Morgan, author of The Trick or Treater and Other Stories and the recently released Mouthful of Ashes. You'll find links to all our social media in the show notes, and of course, links to places where you can buy either signed or unsigned copies of Brianna's books, plays, and so much more. Brianna, thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to Brianna's social media and her website, where you can buy signed copies of her books, and there are also links to buy merchandise. I know I've been eyeing a uh, trick-or-treater shirt myself, so we, we, we shall see. Thanks again to author Brianna Morgan for taking the time. Thanks to Peter Kursoff of Pizanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Night Harvest, by which I mean me, is just about to upload another one of Peter's albums which has previously been unavailable, I think pretty much anywhere, and that is Morning Stuff from 2012. So keep an eye on streaming platforms that'll be going up and some of his previous work released under the name Pandas, Dlia, and Validov, that's more traditionally hip-hop. Some of those albums, which have also been unavailable until now, are slowly popping up on Spotify, so keep an eye out for those as well. Again, that's nightharvestrecordings.com, or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. All right. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, 
put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.